This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. We read the last verse of chapter 1 and then go through chapter 2. Paul speaks to Titus about false teachers. In verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. But... Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And then many good works listed. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers, of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, or stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority let no man despise thee. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. Turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32. Lord's Day 32, this morning we come to the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the first being how great my sins and miseries are. 
The second, how it might be delivered from those sins and miseries. The lengthiest section, appropriately. And then the third part, how it might show my gratitude or thankfulness to God for so great a deliverance. The Lord's Day 32 begins that way about thankfulness. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for His blessings. And that He may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. And that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin with that, that address again and again for every sermon and before every service. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, because you are beloved by Him first. And you are in that Lord Jesus Christ. And it's exactly because you are beloved and in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will be and must be a people zealous of good works. In the Lord Jesus Christ points you to the living bond of faith which joins you, connects you to Jesus Christ. You are branches of yourselves dead but in, connected to the living vine, Jesus Christ, so that you will produce fruit and you will be zealous of good works. The explanation is this. Jesus Himself was zealous of good works. In fact, zealous of perfect works. And because you are joined to Him, saved by Him, redeemed by Him, you too, in connection to Him, will be zealous of good works. That means not only that God judges you, declares you righteous as if you have done perfect works because Jesus did it for you. That's true. That's justification. But there's more, in fact, more to the gospel of being in Jesus Christ. The Gospel includes this. After justifying you, declaring you righteous, perfect in Jesus Christ, the Gospel also says, Jesus makes you zealous of good works. He causes you to be literally, in Titus 2, verse 14, Zealot 
It's a noun there in the original. Not an adjective as the English shows us, but a noun. Zealot of good works. That's your identity in Jesus Christ. As a church, you are a zealot of good works. And as an individual, since you are a member of the church, you too are a good works zealot. That's how strongly Paul puts it to Titus. The word zealot can have a bad connotation, of course. There is a wrong kind of zeal. That misguided zeal, that zeal that is against God even. Zealous not of good works, but zealous of evil works. There's a wrong zeal. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 6 confesses that he had been a zealot with a wrong zeal. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, persecuting Jesus Christ, Jesus said to him on the road of Damascus. Paul had a zeal against Christ, a zeal really for his own self-righteousness, a zeal for the unbelieving Jewish religion, and therefore he did evil work. He was a zealot of self-righteous evil works. One of the disciples was called Simon Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot, probably because before his conversion, he was part of a sect called Zealots. Among the Jews, there were those who had an an extreme approach regarding separation from the sinful world. And they were the ones that took matters into their own hands when they saw law-breaking and had their own illegal private trials and stoned people out of a zeal that was a wrong kind. There are Muslim zealots that engage in jihad today, holy war for a wrong religion. There are Christian zealots even today who under the name Christian seek to promote their religion and fight against abortion with violence or wicked slander. Of course, there are wrong zealots. God's people obviously are not to be such zealots, but zealots of good works. Good works is defined by Scripture in the Catechism out of a true faith in Jesus Christ according to God's law with that holy goal of the glory of God's name out of thankfulness for what He has already done. Are you a zealot of good works? The word zeal should make you think of a different word, but really a very similar word with the same root. Zeal or zealous is similar to jealous. Zealous and jealous. must be distinguished. You may not be confused with envy. Jealousy, actually, and zealousness is rooted in Love. It springs from true love. Someone who is jealous or zealous loves another with great passion so that he will do anything to care for, even if it means his own harm. 
So think of a husband who loves his wife, or a son or daughter who loves his or her mother. You'll be zealous or jealous for her. So that if any harm comes or she is threatened, you'll do anything you can. Even if it means giving up yourself and your reputation for her. Christians, the first zealot of good works, the first one with jealous love is Jesus Christ. We start there today. He has first loved you with a zealous love, with a zealousness of perfect works for you, His bride. And He gave up Himself for you with that zeal. And having done so, He calls you. In response, be zealous for me, your husband. In this epistle, Paul writes very briefly to Titus, who was stationed in Crete. And he emphasizes this good works. You heard that in the reading of chapter 2. Many good works specifically mentioned to specific groups of people. And he does this because in Crete, where Titus labored, there were many who were opposed to good works. Some teachers who taught explicit doctrines against good works, but also those who may have taught the right doctrine, but denied the necessity of good works by their very life. That's what we see in verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. And so Paul writes to Titus to preach the gospel. The gospel we find in chapter 3, verse 8. The heart of the gospel, justification, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But the gospel also is, in verse 14 of chapter 2, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a people zealous or zealot of good works. These things, Paul says to Titus and to preachers today, you must speak or preach and exhort and even rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. So I seek to do that this morning. Preach the gospel as found in Lord's Day 32, and here in Titus 2, particularly verse 14, under the theme, zealots of good works, first the must, second the incentives, and then finally the peculiar people. Why must we do good works? The Catechism asks. The question is very important. The question, why must we do good works, indicates the truth. It's implied, it's clear. The point is, we must. We must do good works. That must is very important. In fact, we can say this along the lines of Titus 2 verse 14, we must be zealots of good works. We must. And there are two meanings of this must in Lord's Day 32. Most importantly, we must understand the must here as the must of inevitability. The must of inevitability. We must be zealots of good works because it's inevitable for those who have been redeemed. You cannot avoid it. It is inescapable if you have escaped sin and hell. 
It is sure to happen. It is as good as done. It is inevitable. Oh, for, for the reprobate. The opposite is true. It is inevitable that there will be zealous of evil works and no good works at all. But for the elect child of God, the one redeemed, brought into covenant with Christ Jesus and Father in heaven, saved, it is inevitable that they will do good works. They will be zealous of good works. That's the meaning of the must first. And to explain this inevitability, consider that this is the very purpose of God in election. One of the most beautiful, well-known proof texts for election is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And we often use this text to prove election, but we forget what comes along with this proof of election, the purpose of election. Ephesians 1, verse 3, according as He hath chosen, there's election, according as God has chosen us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundations of the world. And then we stop there sometimes and don't think about what comes right after that. He's chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That. So that. That indicates purpose. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's the purpose of God in choosing us from eternity. Think about that. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit from eternity had this in their plan, in their mind. We can even think of it as the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a family God thinking and, and talking about their plan from eternity. This is what we've always wanted. Why did we choose that person by name? Why, why have we written that name in, in the book of life? What's the purpose? So that that name of that person might show forth our praise by being holy, doing good works. It's the purpose of election. If that's His purpose in election, I have a question for you who call yourselves elect. Will God's eternal purpose fail? Is it even possible that His purpose fails regarding His elect? You know the answer. His unchangeable purpose cannot fail. He will have His way with you. If you are His chosen people, even if it will take chastisement of the worst kind, fires of purification, He will have His way with you to make you a people zealous of good works. You must, the Catechism says, is inevitable, inevitable because it's God's very purpose of election 
And now back to Titus 2, verse 14, which talks about a very similar point. Now from a different perspective. Considered it from the perspective of election, now the perspective of Christ on the cross. When Christ went to the cross, Titus 2, verse 14 is saying, His purpose was that He might have a people zealous of good works. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. What precious words. He gave Himself for us. Every Christian's heart is thrilled by that simple statement. He gave Himself for us. Who was the first zealot? Jesus Christ. He looked upon us as sinful people in bondage to sin and Satan on the way to hell where we deserve to suffer for an eternity there. But He so loved us. And out of that love sprang forth a jealousy, a zeal, so zealous that He was willing to do anything to save His bride. And that's what He did. He came in our flesh and and in our blood and with our human soul. So zealous was He so that He might be zealous of perfect works in our place. So that He might be zealous giving Himself up on the cross to suffer our hell in our place. You don't understand that zeal yet. So great was it to save us. The zeal for His house did eat Him up. But now ask, what was his purpose? What was his purpose when he so zealously gave himself up for us like this? To make us a people zealous of good works. Not only to justify us, that's implied in this text but so that you might be purified as a people zealous unto good works. Hear, hear His cry in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go back there. If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not not as, as I will, but as Thou will. And you can hear Father say to His Son, can't you? Though it's not recorded in Scripture, remember, Son, This was our purpose from eternity. You must, you must drink that cup because that's the only way to accomplish that purpose of making these our people zealous of good works. Thy will be done, Jesus said, to make a people zealous unto good works. Go back to the cross. Why hast thou forsaken me? There came that cry from the darkness. Why? But he knew that I might make people zealous of good works. And so he gave himself up to hell and he gave gave up the ghost. And so I ask you, beloved, if this was the purpose of the almighty Son of God, 
And he fell. Will it not be done in the life of his people? And you know the answer. His cross is efficacious. His bloodshed earned the Spirit. Merited for us not only justification, but sanctification. It must be accomplished, for He has paid for it all, that we become a people zealous of good works. It's why He went to the cross. It's inevitable. It must be done. And this point is so important that I unashamedly belabor it. To bring you now, not only from election to the cross, Father and Son, but to the Spirit. That's what the Catechism brings up. The Spirit's purpose. Why must we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood also, renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. Jesus Christ, having died, rose again and ascended. And you know He poured forth His Holy Spirit upon these people that He had chosen and these people that He had shed His blood for. And that Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And when that Spirit came as a mighty rushing wind, His purpose, along with fathers and sons, was to purify a people zealous of good works. Can you resist the Holy Spirit? As He seeks to accomplish His purpose? No. He will have His way with you. You must do good works. You must be a people zealous of good works. It's inevitable. This doctrine is against both both Arminianism and antinomianism. When the gospel is preached in truth, it's against every lie. It's against Arminianism, first of all, because Arminianism would say Christ works in us the power to believe and the power to be holy and the power to do good works, but in the end, really, it's up to your free will to choose Him and to choose to do good works. And the Catechism shows otherwise. Because, notice, because Christ, that's how it starts. Why must we do good works? Because Christ. Not because you. Because Christ renews us by His Spirit. This is no cooperation. Christ so bends our wills by His Spirit so that we who of ourselves don't want to do good works are made to want to. Not this Arminian concept. He leaves it up to our wills. But He bends our wills by His almighty power. To be zealous unto good works. We who were zealous unto selfish works now are made zealous unto works for Him. That's against Arminianism, but the Word of God is against antinomianism as well. Antinomianism is especially what this 
Lord's Day is against. Question, question 87 directs the aim there. Cannot they then be saved? Read that again. Cannot they then be saved? And the Catechism is indeed saying, you cannot be saved. It cannot be that you are saved. If you do not do good works. If you continue impenitently in evil works. If you have no desire or zeal of good works. That's not because you're saved by your works. But it's because every one of His people that God saves must do good works. And therefore, it cannot be that you are saved if you continue without any good works impenitently in sin. The must is a must of inevitability. But secondly, is also it's a must of obligation. The believer must do good works, the catechism says. And it means you're required. Christ says you must as your Lord. Christ's identity, beloved, is, is, is your Savior. He's your Savior. But Christ's identity also is this, that He is Lord. That is, He is Master. If He's your Savior, He is also your Master. And that means you are His servant, His, his slave. As your Master or your Lord, He has authority over you. That means He has the right to tell you what to do. He has a right to give you duties to command, to require, to obligate you to Him. He does. Do you hear Him? You must. What I command, I also equip. What I command, you must do good works. And Titus 2 points to that. In verse 14 also, with the word redeem. The word redeem there is the word ransom. And you know the picture, it's familiar to you. We read it in the law today. We are like the Israelites in Egypt in bondage to sin and Satan. Pharaoh was our Lord. But Jesus Christ paid for our redemption. He paid the ransom price, not with silver or gold, but with His precious blood. And you also know that ransoming or redeeming is not only the payment, but it's the taking of that person that was once in bondage out of darkness to be placed under the service of a different Lord. Your Lord Jesus Christ! You're not saved from Lord Satan to be your own Lord. But you've been placed under a monarchy, a king, not a democracy, in a kingdom where Jesus is king and he rules. And as the Lord, he says, you must do what I tell you to do. 
Not as a tyrant, but as a loving Lord. And with the Holy Spirit in us, such an obligation comes to us, not as a heavy burden, but as a delight. Because this obligation is not an obligation of merit. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say you have to earn anything. There's an obligation of thanks. That's the third part of the catechism we're in. You're obligated. You must do good works. Because your obligation is thankfulness, gratitude. I have already merited fully. Question 86 says we're delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, which means Christ has merited every part of salvation. And so the motivation now, as zealots of good works, is gratitude. Gratitude. That's familiar to us, familiar to you, but you may never get tired of hearing that. Because gratitude is something that we're always short of. Gratitude is something that we can always improve in. It's our obligation and it's our motivation. The motivation. For our entire life, now until the grave and then through eternity. Gratitude to the praise of His grace. Distinguish the motivation of gratitude now from the incentives which the catechism also includes. And some might close your ears to this and say, perhaps I'm splitting hairs, but I exhort you not to. It's important to distinguish between what is the motivation of a Christian of good, unto good works and the incentives. What's the motivation to be zealous of good works? Gratitude. When I say motivation, I mean the internal driving force which the Holy Spirit works in my heart as I look to Jesus Christ and all that He's done. As I look to Jesus Christ and how He gave Himself up for me, there is an internal drive, the motivation of thanks. If you want to talk about secondary motivations, I'm not going to argue with you about semantics, but you better keep them secondary. The, mo the motivation is gratitude. Then we can talk about incentives. If you remove the main motivation of gratitude, if you're distracted from that motivation of thankfulness unto God for what Jesus has already done, and that becomes secondary, or that you lose focus of that main motivation, you will practically, even if you don't doctrinally, you will practically fall back into giving up the gospel. You will go forth trying to do good works to get something from God. You will make 
yourself a manipulator trying to get God to give you something for what you did. Practically, it will devolve into that. So keep your eye on Jesus Christ. Not on your good works that you've already done. Keep your eye on Jesus Christ. Not on the incentives even, though you know they are there. Keep your eye on Jesus Christ and out of thankfulness serve Him. That is your motivation. And then yes, don't deny either the incentives. There are many of them. The Catechism gives us two. There are many. Catechism focuses on two gracious incentives that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. An incentive is distinguished from a motivation in that they are encouragements along the way. Encouragements along the way. So that while I still pursue good works and zeal, the only motivation I need is thanks. And yet, God is so gracious. He gives us incentives to help us. The first incentive, really the second one that the Catechism talks about, the first one we, can, we talk about today is that others may be gained to Christ. Notice the passive voice. You don't do the gaining. You know that. Maybe you've tried. Someone who's impenitent. Someone who's walking in sin. You've tried to, to gain that person to Christ. You've gone to a neighbor and tried to do evangelism, a witness to them. you tried to gain them. to. You can't gain them to Christ. You can't reach into their heart and turn them. But God does. He does so as He works in our hearts to do good works. And with those good works, He shines the glorious Gospel to others so that as our light so shines before men, they are turned by God to glorify their Father in Heaven with us. But the fact that we cannot do the gaining God must, shows us that that cannot be my motivation for works. Think about it. If no one gets converted, does that mean I stop doing good works? No. If 3,000 get converted at one time as I do good works, does that mean, oh, I've done enough, I don't have to do good works anymore? No. My motivation is thankfulness. But God helps me, encourages me along the way with these, this incentive. What a thrilling thought that He would use me for the spread of the Gospel with my good works to gain the hearts of His elect and bring about His kingdom. Another incentive the Catechism gives us is the confirmation of faith. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. Yes, I use the word confirmation. Even though the Catechism uses the word assurance. Because by assurance, that's what the Catechism means. The confirmation that I have faith. 
And I say confirmation also because the word assurance has been pulled out of context of the catechism before and used to teach a wrong doctrine. And the wrong doctrine of assurance is this, that we are assured of our justification by good works. should be obvious to you when you hear that, that's false. When the Bible speaks of justification, it is talking about the assurance of justification. God, with His voice, assuring me, you're righteous because of what Christ has done. And that does not come because of good works or by the instrument of good works, but because of Jesus Christ alone and by faith alone. And so to avoid the confusion and the error about assurance, I say the catechism means when it speaks of assurance there, confirmation. Confirmation, notice, not of justification, but a confirmation of faith. The gift of faith that He's worked in me. He demonstrates He confirms to me that I am indeed joined to Jesus Christ, the living vine. That I do have a believing heart by causing there to flow out of me good works and a zeal to good works. James says, I will show thee my faith by my works. James 2.18 It's a logical deduction as the good works come forth from my life, as I do them out of thankfulness, yes, I can deduce with a logical deduction. That's evidence that I have faith, but I don't stay there. With the evidence that I have faith, I look up to Jesus Christ, who covers all the sins that taint my good works. And I live in thankfulness for Him. With that wonderful confirmation, and even for that wonderful confirmation that He gives me. But that's not a good place to end a sermon. We end rather on the truth of who we are in Christ. We are, as Titus 2 verse 14, a peculiar people. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity, Purify unto himself a peculiar people. And along with that identity, zealot of good works. Peculiar. That is a peculiar word. It's a rich word. Peculiar. Significantly, before I go into that word, notice that the Scripture does not have you, God's people, identify yourself with the old man. He does not have you identify yourself as enemies in bondage to Satan. In one verse, He calls you redeemed, purified, 
zealot of good works, and now peculiar people. God identifies you as such, and and when you ask, who am I? You must say, I, I, am, I am this, redeemed, purified, peculiar, zealot of good works. Yes, you must also say, I'm a sinner. I'm an old man by nature. I have a totally depraved old man. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says in Romans 7, verse 25. That old man still affects my every part, taints all my best works. I only have a small beginning in my zeal of good works. Yes, we must say that too. Don't deny that. Don't respond to someone going to the opposite extreme by denying that. But I'm a sinner saved by grace. Oh, wretched man that I am, but Paul follows it right up. Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then with the mind, I, I, I myself serve the law of God, though with my flesh, the law of sin. You see, my identity in Christ is not just totally depraved sinner, period. That's a half truth. And that is a lie. That's what a half-truth is. That half-truth is being promoted today by the world. Significantly, among the LGBTQ movement, that's what many confessing believers say. I am, I'm gay, I'm, I'm lesbian, I... My identity has to do with my sexual orientation. That's the world today. And when that identity is claimed, you know what that means. That means I'm a Christian, but I can't really help it if I do what is against God's Word. I don't have to be zealous in fighting my sin. I'm justified as a Christian, but sanctification is in heaven. <clears throat> That's the same thing happening in Reformed churches today. I'm totally depraved. <clears throat> period. If that's your identity, period. There's nothing more to say about your identity. That's a half-truth. Not only, it's a lie, not only. That's to deny Jesus as Lord. Because those He saves, He rules over. And more, to say I am depraved, period. is to really say that I am not saved. That I cannot be saved, as the Catechism puts it. I am a sinner, but in Christ Jesus I am justified and redeemed. 
He makes me a zealot of good works. I always follow it up with, and you must, and I am what I am by the grace of God. And then this description, finally, a peculiar people. Peculiar is a rich word, I said. First, it means I belong. Literally means possession, his possession. The emphasis of this text. He redeems to make us his possession unto himself. One that he can hold. His possession, a peculiar people means a peculiar possession. Mine, the Lord says. You belong to me and you hear Lord's day one. You're not, no longer Satan's. You're mine. Peculiar means, secondly, special. A special possession. So that you belong, you belong to Jesus, not just, not like a, like a rock or a diamond to a jeweler. It's better than that. You belong to Jesus in relationship. It's the covenant idea. You are His wife. His beloved bride. Jesus the husband says to His church, you're, you're mine as a, as, a, as a wife belongs to a husband. I own lots of things on this earth. Everything in creation is, is mine in that sense. I own it all. But you are my special possession. I take special delight in my church and my bride and my people. I embrace you as such. That's the word peculiar. Belonging. A special belonging or possession. And finally, the richness of this word comes out here. Even more different. Special in the sense of different. Different from the rest of the world. So that you will stand out. You will. Not because you try to be someone that is better than everyone else. Because you seek in thanks to God to do good works. Mine, God says, special to me, unique, different. That to my delight. And the world wrinkles its nose and says, oh, weird, very peculiar. And that's okay for the people of God. He loves us. He saved us. He's made us such to reflect His beauty. You would have nothing else, would you? To be what He wants you to be. What He has purpose from eternity. What was Christ's purpose on the cross and what the Spirit's purpose is in working in you? You would have nothing else, would you? The child of God wants what God wants according to that new man in him. Peculiar. With a peculiar Savior. With a peculiar Gospel. And I end with this. Is there any, is there any religion like this one that we have? 
Look around you. And then quickly look back at Christianity. But survey the globe and the religions all around. Every other religion speaks, if it speaks of salvation at all, it speaks of salvation by works. You must do something to get your salvation. There's no other religion out there that shows salvation. Not of works, as Titus 3 verse 5 says, of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Grace alone, because of Jesus alone, by faith alone. But that's not the whole story. Astoundingly, profoundly, the Christian religion not only says that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but how peculiar. Salvation is unto works, which He has us do zealously. In fact, here's the wonder, the irony. Only those saved without works will truly do good works. Because only those saved without their works will be thankful and will do works out of faith for His glory. And only those who are saved have the Holy Spirit, which renews them according to Christ's image. This is the true gospel, a peculiar one that rejects Arminianism and antinomianism and every other error. This is the gospel you have. Why? Why me? Why you? Why, why, why do you have such a peculiar Savior and a peculiar gospel and are made a peculiar people so precious to God and saved without your works and yet unto works? Why have you been given the knowledge of this gospel and not everyone else? Well, if you're asking why, as to the reason, the basis, the only answer is mercy. But if you're asking why, as to the purpose, that you might be zealous of good works to the praise of the glory of His grace, and all the more today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as Thy Word Regarding good works, we pray, stir within our souls a zeal. Thy purposes fulfill in us, through us, for Thy glory. Make us zealots of good works. Do that which is inevitable, that which is required in us. For the glory of Thy name, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has saved us without works, and unto works, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, 
hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.